Claire Highbloom interviews Jesus on the subject of Christian religion. The recording took place in Wilkesdale, Queensland, Australia, on the 4th of March, 2013. This is Session 1, Part 1. Okay. Well, my name's Claire Highbloom. I've been a Catholic Christian all my life. Um, I've always loved my faith. I've always loved the people that I've been to church with. I think my parents were pretty good examples to me. Uh, my friends uh, were a support to me. And as I got older, I felt a deeper, deeper draw towards God. Mm. I wanted to really um, experience what it was like to be a Christian, to, to feel what it's like to be a Christian. And then here I am at over 55 years of age and I'm discovering the um, divine love. And I'm not finding it terribly different at all from Mm. what I've believed all along. And Mm. I really do feel that it is a step deeper, Mm. quite a step deeper. And um, um, I would like to find ways in which... I don't leave my faith behind or my church aside because I love them so much. Mm. But I would like to find ways that I could actually bring both together and to make my faith and my um, quest towards God more real, mm-hmm. more definite. Mm. Good God. Yeah. yeah. So Welcome. Please. Thank you so much. <laughs> so, the first so we've of got a whole series of questions about uh, Christian religion, basically, or things relating to Christian religion. That's right. Mm. It's um, not a fundamentalist um, approach. Yeah. It's a um, really soulful approach. Yeah. And um, I've been taught well, so I hope that these will <laughs> get to some really, really uh, deeper issues. Yeah, good. That okay. sounds great. Now, number one, the first question... Could you please tell us about the early followers of Jesus? They called themselves the way. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, they called themselves the way because I called the thing that I was discussing with them the way to God. So that's why that term, that terminology was eventually used to define the people who followed the teachings mm-hmm. that I taught. Um, Claire, you want to know about their personalities and natures or would you like to know about their general condition or what kind of uh, questions? I would love to hear about how their lives were transformed. Right. Their whole being was transformed with a a great deal of desire. Well, you may be disappointed to hear the answer to that question. (laughs) The, The reality is a lot of the transformations that occurred with the people we knew in the first century at the time did not really occur strongly until after I died. Mm -hmm. And the main reason for that was that while they were listening to me and were fascinated about the truths they were hearing, and there was quite a lot of soul-based desire driven by these truths in Mm -hmm. terms of causing people to be quite fascinated, many of them didn't practice what they learned at all until after I passed. And the main reason was because there wasn't a large amount of faith in them about what I was teaching. So while they could see that my example was quite clear, they could see that obviously something had transformed myself and they could see that I acted differently to every other person Mm -hmm. I'd ever met, they themselves had not personally experienced many of the things that I was teaching and so they weren't necessarily convinced that they could do it Um, they felt strongly that obviously Mm. something had happened to me 
But and some of them had a feeling that that happened to me because of some kind of unique thing inside of myself rather than understanding that it was as a result of the things that I was teaching them. So, so up until my death, um, there was a, a number of, or you could say a series of things that occurred uh, up until the point of my death. Around 12 to 13 years before my death, um, so I was in my sort of early 20s at this point, um, there were some events that happened in my life that caused me to leave my family and to live alone for a period of time. And then, then eventually I went and lived in Capernaum, which was mm. a, a, a part of the, on the, on the edge of the Sea of Galilee, on the, what would you call it now, be the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And that little town, I had a little one-bedroom room, if you like, uh, in that town. And I began to share divine truth with others, even though I was not yet at one with God. Okay. So, and this is not something that is mentioned in the Bible. So I began to share the divine truth. And as a result of sharing it, very similar things happened to what are happening currently in my life right now. And that is there would be people attracted to the divine truth, attracted to what I'm speaking to them about, attracted to the condition of love that I was in, even though I was not at one with God at that point in time. But, uh, of course, they didn't have a strong feeling to embrace the teachings for themselves. They weren't always very passionate about prayer or any of the other things about becoming to become at one with God. But there was a growing number, a very slowly growing number. So from the time of, my, of 25 years of age onwards around about, there was a slow, slowly growing number of people who were listening. And I would walk around the different towns in the Sea of Galilee and visit different places. I worked fix, fixing uh, fishing nets for, mm. for the fishermen. And so I got to share a lot of the divine truth with lots of different people, people, just yes. average people. In that process, many of them started to put into practice or started to at least attempt to put into practice some things about love that they were learning. And they would talk about it and share about it with others. And so by the time I became at one with God, there was already quite a large following of people who had heard the divine truth. Mm. That being said, um, most of them hadn't personally practiced the divine truth because they couldn't understand the difference between intellectually hearing and understanding and a soul-based awareness and understanding. Mm. So, so there was a lot of confusion about the mm. difference between intellectual and soul-based awareness. And so when I spoke of the different things that transform the soul and receiving divine love, and of course receiving divine love is very much about getting yourself into a state of humility and truth. Many of them weren't humble, particularly oh. to their own emotions, <laughs> yeah. and many of them weren't very truthful in their day-to-day life. And so as a result, they would, have, they would often be in a lot of argumentative places, even though they were following me around. So even before I became at one with God, you'd have people like Peter and, and, and others, mm. that, like John, James, who, who knew me before I became at one with God. They'd, have, they'd be following along behind me, having their little arguments and fights about all sorts of issues uh, that they haven't been able to resolve from the t- things I was trying to teach them. Mm. In addition to that, there was large groups of women who were also very interested. Now, it was more difficult for a woman because they couldn't just leave a home or a family and follow easily unless their husbands were willing to do so. 
And so for many of the women, they were primarily, they took the opportunities to listen before I became one with God, before I was baptised. They took the opportunities to listen when I visited their town, but they did not, um, you know, they couldn't follow around and listen to everything, of course. And of course, there was no written things written mm. down, very, very little That's written right. down at this point. So, so they could only listen and only hear through word of mouth what mm. was being taught. Now, of course, word of mouth, as you know, mm-hmm. is quite a distorted yes. <laughs> means of uh, <laughs> transmitting information because one person can say one thing and then the emotional filters of the next person filter all of that out and, yeah. and they relay the information. And so quite a lot of the information that people was, were hearing was actually a, a distortion already of what mm. I was sharing. Mm. But, uh, but it was their mm. slant, if you like, on what I was sharing. Mm. And this occurred quite a lot as well. Mm. But there were large groups of women, actually, who were interested in divine truth. Sometimes the women were more interested in than the men. Mm. And, uh, and a few of them could follow because some of their men could follow. They had a self-sustenance, uh, enough money, to follow somebody around for yeah. a short period of time. So sometimes the women and sometimes the whole family would follow as a result. And, of course, most of that happened on foot or, or on, a, on mm. a beast of some kind, you know, like a donkey or an ass or a horse or whatever. And, uh, and so you'd have people following around. Now, this was all before my baptism, before mm. I went down to the Jordan with John. So during that period of time, a lot of people heard the divine truth but because I was not yet at one with God, similar to my condition at this point in time, um, many you know, couldn't say for certain that they felt that they could follow it. Mm. They did not have a strong faith themselves, many of them, and so they did not uh, have a strong faith in God or strong mm. faith they exercised with prayer. They did not uh, often believe what I was saying. Mm. Uh, they were fascinated by it but didn't believe mm. it, many of them. And very similar to how most people were acting there today. Yeah, well, actually, the story is quite similar. Yeah, and it was true. It's true. I had not realised that um, in your um, uh, life back two thousand years ago, you you were not at one with God the whole time. I thought you were born at one with God. Yes, this is a common uh, Mm. assumption from for many Christians that I was sort of born at one with God and and somehow was special all through my life. And while um, some of my experiences were unique with God, obviously, and while there were some unique things that happened uh, with God during my life uh, that hadn't happened to anyone prior, um, it didn't mean that I was some kind of special, unique Mm. individual. It was, a, a, well, I, when I say special, unique individual, every person's a special and unique individual. So mm. I'm like a special and unique individual, the same as you are a special and unique individual. But um, in the sense of having some kind of uh, special connection with God, I had to embrace the desire yeah. for God inside of myself. Yes. I had to desire it by myself without mm. God's influence. Mm. And this is something that most people are unaware of about mm. my first century life. Mm. Now, my desire for God began quite young. And I, by the time of five, I had a fairly solid desire mm. for God, um, which was much greater than anyone else mm. I knew at the time. And so that was quite unique. And in fact, my parents thought me to be some kind of zealot, you know, some yeah. kind of... And, and sometimes they thought I was quite nuts when it came mm. to my crazy when it came to my relationship with God. They didn't understand it well, particularly my father, 
So he struggled to understand where I was coming from. So, so although he believed I was the Messiah mm. because of certain events that happened during my early childhood, he slowly came to feel that I wasn't the Messiah as I started expressing uh, opinions and ideas that were very different to his yes. own. Yes. He, he had a very strong concept about what the Messiah would be and my, my concept of what the Messiah would be, and at that point I didn't think it was me, um, my concept of the Messiah I was looking for was completely different. Mm-hmm. And we often, by the time I was in my teenage years, we often had what you'd probably classify as arguments about yeah. that, um, my, with my father disagreeing quite strongly and sometimes violently about my opinion. And so by the time I was in my early 20s, I had formulated quite strongly what I believed the Messiah would be, which was very, very different to what my father mm-hmm. believed the Messiah would be. And my mum didn't really know either way. She, yeah. she, she was uh, a yeah. person who, you know, she was watching me develop and obviously she knew something was up, but um, as mums generally do if they're connected with their children, but um, she couldn't really understand it either and quite often she thought I was crazy too. Mm. So even by the time I was baptised by John, um, my mother still thought that there's something gone wrong with me, mm. um, but she loved my nature. She yeah, loved my loving nature. Yes. My father thought there was something completely wrong with me and he didn't love my loving nature. Um, so he, mm. he struggled a bit more. Mm. And, of course, he was a member of the Sanhedrin yes. by this stage. Yes. So, you know, he struggled on a lot of levels with what I was teaching. Mm. But the general people were um, very similar to the people mm. that Today. we know now who are currently interested in listening to divine truth but who still are not certain about whether my claims about being Jesus are correct mm, or not. Mm. Um, that, and it was very similar in the first century. I claimed I was a Messiah during this period of time. After around 25 years of age, I was quite comfortable with claiming that publicly, mm. uh, even though I was yet to be at one with God. And, um, and people, you know, obviously had their different opinions about that. Mm. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, very, very similar to the reactions that I'm getting right now okay. uh, during those periods of time. Once I became at one with God, of course, uh, things changed quite markedly there, but there was still not a large degree of desire for the individuals who were listening to me to, to develop their own relationship with God. And in fact, on the earth at the moment, many Christians have a much stronger desire to develop their own relationship with God, and many Muslims and many other people do too, by the way, um, than the people who were following me around did. Wow. Yeah. And um, Well, that's heartening, isn't it? Yeah, in some ways. (laughs) And it it also, the difference, I feel, for many of them in the first century, and we'll talk about some of the differences maybe in another question, is that there was a strong... There wasn't a strong predisposition of feeling they already knew the truth, whereas what I find on earth now uh-huh. is in many religions there is a strong feeling that I have the truth and I cannot accept anything more mm. than what I've already been mm. shared, you know, what, what I already feel I know. Now, that wasn't present in most of the people who followed in the first century. There was a huge amount of, in the first century, a huge amount of... Uh, feelings in the people who followed me that they weren't receiving any satisfaction from the religious teachings that they were currently being taught. Mm. There was Mm. no firm definition of what God was like. 
There was no firm idea about what the spirit world, you know, what happens after you die. Mm. There was no firm idea about the soul. And, in fact, there wasn't even a firm idea about the spirit body or anything like that. And so uh, there was a, it was a very physical existence. And as a result of that, these people felt quite dissatisfied in their hearts. And so when somebody like myself came along, it, it was tempting for almost anybody to listen to them for a period of time at least uh, until whether, you know, they felt they could listen no more or, yeah. or, whether the, or if their soul was engaged. Mm. And if their soul was engaged, their heart was engaged, they would listen a lot, mm. even though they themselves didn't practice what they heard. Okay. So they'd listen because it was fascinating, but many didn't practice what they heard. And, and in fact, the majority of these so-called apostles, for example, mm. didn't practice what they heard here mm. either and didn't do so until way after my death in many cases. Are they the people that were called the, um, oh, I think of it, um, God-fearers? They weren't committed, but they were there. Yeah, and yeah they were I would f- probably call them God-fearers. Of, because the, the, the God-fearers. We I'd call them God-fearers God for a number of reasons. <laughs> <laughs> many, you know, one of the concepts of God that was very prevalent then and still is quite prevalent on the planet now is this concept that, you have to be afraid of God. Mm. And uh, so many of them were God-fearers in that complete Mm. sense, that they were very afraid of God. They were quite fatalistic, uh, but also they had this concept of destiny, you know, that some unseen force was, you know, motivating their future destiny, who they believed to be God, and, and whom they were quite afraid of because they felt quite negative things happened during their lives, of course, which they blamed on God. Right. Or they blamed on their own uh, dis- disobedience with God. Yes. But they, but they weren't clear on how they disobeyed God <laughs> yes. because many of them were following the Torah. They were following mm. what they believed to be God's word at the time and yet bad things were still happening to them mm. so, that, so they couldn't understand mm. how that was happening. So mm. there was a lot of, as I said, a lot of very unclear ideas. Mm. Uh, but they were God-fearers. But many of them also had this idea that they wanted the truth. They wanted to know... There was an openness to the truth. Yes, there yes. was no, a soul-based openness yes. towards truth, which is very, which I find very similar today mm. in many of the people mm. who are currently listening. Mm. Um, many of the people who are currently listening have a better understanding about a relationship with God than most of the people who were listening in the first okay. century before my death. Okay. Um, you know, there were a few that had a good understanding. Mary, uh, being yes. my wife, had a great understanding. Uh, John the Apostle, who's called mm. the Apostle John, he had a pretty good understanding. He was quite sensitive at the soul level. There were others like Cornelius and others mm. who I'm, I met through after I became one with God who gained quite a good understanding um, to a degree mm. before I passed. But but the majority didn't have anywhere near of a clear concept of what I was talking about mm. most of the time. Mm. <laughs> Hence they had a lot of fights and arguments <laughs> <laughs> about what I meant you know, yes. as a result. Yes. And those fights and arguments became quite extreme after my passing. Okay. So, so much so that they caused fra- f- fractioning yes. and fissions in amongst... Is that the reason why many of them would, would just leave and go to India or... Yeah. Yeah, because they couldn't tolerate the (laughs) belief systems that everybody else had. (laughs) I see. (laughs) And many also had a strong desire to share truth with others too. That was one. Once they they had faith, and the faith came when I appeared to them after my death, Mm -hmm. that for many of them there was not a strong faith Mm -hmm. until that occurred. Like, for example, the the, um, uh, example of Thomas. Yes. Yes. Yeah, Thomas was my brother. 
And oh. he, uh, he was a man who had a lot of doubts about me because yeah. he, he'd grown up with me all of, of my life. So he of saw course. me as a child yes. and he was a younger brother of mine. I, you know, he, was, uh, he was around five or six years younger than I. Oh. And, but he had a lot of doubts about me as a child mm. because he saw me growing up. He sort of viewed me as a normal child, mm. normal teenager, just someone who had some ideas that were very different. <laughs> and then he heard the divine truth because I spoke about it openly in my family as I was growing up. And, uh, you know, at what you would now classify the dinner table as the <laughs> dinner table. And, uh, and so, you know, he'd heard it most of his life. He was quite fascinated by it. But he also sort of see, saw me as his brother. Like yeah, his, of course. He, he didn't see me as anything unique and I, was, I didn't feel I was anything unique. But, but when I became at one with God, he could see there was quite a large difference wow. there. And he, he had some faith. But when I died, all of his faith deserted him. Okay. And that occurred to many yeah. of the disciples at the yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. At the time of my death, they, it was it was to them like the most yes. crushing experience. Yes. Because they sort of felt like everything that I'd spoken of was not true anymore. Mm. And it wasn't until I reappeared to them mm-hmm. after my death mm-hmm. um, in different bodies, but they could sense that I, you know who I was through what I was speaking. Of course. And that they realised that I was still alive. Mm. And as a result of that, mm. things changed in their faith. Yes. Yeah. So that actually might lead on to the next question, I no think. No worries. Well, let's start For number question. two. Um, now, how did the early followers of Jesus differ from contemporary Christians? Well, if we look at the average contemporary Christian, the Christian in modern day times, there's a very strong, firm belief in the Bible. In the first century, the people who listened to me, there was no, there wasn't, there wasn't much of an understanding of a written word. They understood that the, there was the Torah, the mm-hmm. first five books of what is now the Bible, written by Moses. Many of them didn't, weren't uh, lettered enough to have read them. Mm. And so, you know, they relied on the priests and so forth to, to tell them what those particular words said. Some of them would go to the synagogue you know, during the week and on the weekends and, uh, and they would, you know, listen to the presentations of, the, of the, the minister of the synagogue at the time who would read passages of the prophets or read passages of the Torah and so they would come to understand through the word of mouth what those particular books said. So in that regard, they, they were sort of similar in the sense that there was a book that they were attempting to follow, for, but they, it was a Jewish, it was mm. the Jewish religion they were attempting to follow. Mm. And Christians today have a very firm opinion generally about whether the Bible is completely God's word or not, whereas these people did not. Uh, have a firm opinion that the okay. Torah was God's word. They felt it was the channeling, you know, the information that came from Moses from through through Moses from God. But they didn't feel that it was restrictive in the sense that they felt there was more to it. Yeah, than that. yeah. So I feel that's one quite primary difference in that they had a stronger openness generally. And here I'm talking about the average person, mm. not not the average. Uh, Pharisee or Sadducee, because the average Pharisee or Sadducee had a very firm opinion about what God's word was and had a very firm opinion of the Torah and as a result had a very firm opinion that I was, I was heretical. Mm. 
And that is pretty plain if persons read even what is recorded in the Bible about the history of my time. But uh, so that's one sort of difference. It's similar, but there in Christians today, there's a very rigid, there's a lot of rigidity about the Bible being God's word. Whereas in the first century, there was less rigidity about the Torah being God's word in amongst the people who generally listened. Um, in the first century, there was a much more physical existence um, than now. So, you know, as you can imagine, mm. everyone was eking out a living mm. and, uh, and quite often that involved a lot of their attention. Um, and nowadays, there's a lot more free time. So, mm. you know, a, right. the average Christian has a lot more free time on their hands than the average person who listened to me in the first century had. Unfortunately, free time can cause a lot of trouble, mm. as you're aware, and, and I think a lot of Christians are aware that you know, sometimes they use their free time in ways that distract them from their own faith. But, uh, but also it gives you time to study, it gives you time to understand, it gives you time to contemplate, which wasn't always available to mm. people in the first century. Mm. Um, Another way that there's quite, uh, in terms of emotionally, very similar emotions, uh, very similar emotions. The Jews had this viewpoint that they were the promised. Yes. They, they were the uh, children of God. They yes. Were, they were, you know, the, the, the children that God selected. And the Christians today have the same concept or idea that mm-hmm. they are the children God selected. Both concepts are incorrect, by the way, mm-hmm. but, uh, but they are the concepts that exist. So there are very many parallels mm. between the Jewish faith and speaking to people with the Jewish faith as there are now speaking with people in the Christian faith. Mm. A lot of parallels. Um, in the first century, they didn't have a large concept about emotions. Uh, you know, They were eking out a living and, and they lived in their emotions more fully probably mm. than people today. Yes. In other words, if yes. they felt angry, they'd express yes. their anger usually a lot more rapidly than a person will today. Um, so in some cases that was good because you got to see the, f- the real person um, rather than the facade that you see mm. often today. Um, but in some cases it wasn't good because they acted in manners that mm. degraded their own condition mm-hmm. and that caused all sorts of moral issues for them in their progress. So the average Christian today is probably in a, in a better moral state okay. than the average person that I spoke to in the first century. Mm. And I feel the state of ethics, though, is very similar to people in the first century. Uh, because, and I feel the state of ethics hasn't changed much in the last 2,000 years since I've been observing the earth. Mostly because people become emotional about their belief systems and then all the ethics they have fly out the window yeah. in, that, in, in their emotional state. And so the state of ethics is quite different. And there were, obviously, the environment I lived in in the first century, women were not treated very well. Mm. Uh, it was a major problem, in fact, mm. for the souls of men uh, that women weren't treated very well because men were often the perpetrators of violence towards women, which degraded the men's condition emotionally and, and, and their soul condition. So men today are usually, in a, particularly Christian men, are usually in a much better emotional condition. Although, that being said they still have many of the same issues that the men of the first century had towards women. And this is why some yeah. of the Pauline principles yeah. of, you know, not having a woman teaching in the congregation, for oh. example, mm-hmm. are still present in the Christian faith because mm-hmm. the men want to hold on to these particular principles 
and they don't honour mm. the fact that actually men and women are equal from mm. God's perspective. Mm. And this was something I tried to teach quite strongly in the first century without much success at all. Yes. Um, yes. Because there was so much of a heavy sway and mm. a heavy bent towards men dominating women. Mm. So... So the men today are probably a lot more open to having an equal relationship, yeah. whereas the men in the first century more saw their women as possessions, mm-hmm. uh, very much so. It was very rare, in fact, to find a man mm-hmm. who didn't see his woman as a mm-hmm. possession. And, um, and that, that, was a made pro- mm-hmm. that was a major problem. It was not only a major problem for the men, but it was a major problem for the women in terms of hearing divine truth and listening to it because they could hear that I was saying that men and women were equal, and then they'd go home to their men yeah. and start to try to, uh, yes. to to live that kind of life. And, of course, the men would become violent and, and many mm. women died oh. at the hands of their husbands as a result mm. of hearing divine truth in the first century. Oh. So oh. there were many, many more women martyrs of, of divine truth in the first century than men, particularly while I was alive. Mm. Um, and many of them died while I was alive. Um, as a result of the amount of rage that was in the men towards women and the amount of control that the men had. Mm. So if a woman listened without her man, she, she risked a very, very large amount of rage and violence as a result. And this is why in the, there are comments of me making things, comments in the Bible about, you know, that I came to, bring, to make enemies between family members. And that's not what I actually said. What I actually said was that the, that the truth would create mm. enemies within the family mm. because some family members would want to hold on to unloving belief systems. So, yeah, that was the primary thing that happened back then. So, there were, so the women nowadays, of course, have a lot more say what happens in their family. Absolutely. Particularly in the Western mm. countries where Christianity generally is practised and they have a lot more autonomy mm. than they had in the first century. So... The life for women, and particularly women who were listening to what I was preaching in the first century, was very, very different to women listening now. Mm. I know within my own church, um, because of the lack of priests and in you know, very isolated areas, women are taking on roles of, of ministry that mm-hmm. was never even heard of a, a generation ago. Exactly. And um, it, it just seems to be such a liberating, wonderful direction forward. It's an excellent direction forward. Yes. It's, a, um, it's a direction that mankind should have been following mm. <laughs> for many thousands of years. It seems to have taken so long. It has because there has been, and there has been cycles between men and women as mm. well, where historically, right, right through ancient history, mm. sometimes women were dominant and, mm. uh, and the men were subservient. And the men's role was basically procreation, serving the woman for sexual purposes and providing all of their material needs. And, uh, and then, of course, men got very angry about that role <laughs> and, uh, and they, 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 they then flipped over. And then by the time of my arrival in the first century, obviously, we, li- we lived in a very male-dominant society. And it still is, mm. uh, if you look as a whole, mm. the earth, it still is a very male-dominated society. Certainly. Um, and, of course, there are many women who are very angry about that now, mm. just as there were many men angry about the previous yes. condition. Um, and there are many men spirits, uh, women spirits, who are angry about mm. that now, who are trying to change that. And anger in either direction towards the genders, to the other gender, is obviously never going to result in any sure. positive growth on the planet. So, 
that is something that I wanted to correct right from the first century. And Mary was often present mm. in all of my discussions with men. Mm. So as you know, you've visited some Arabic, Arabic countries now. Uh, you know that there's still a separation of men from women Absolutely. generally. And you know that when men get together, they don't like the women being present yes. necessarily. And that's really what it was like in the first century. Yes. So me having Mary right next to me in every single discussion yes. was a major confrontation. Yes. And as a result, there was a lot of hatred and an animosity projected mm. towards Mary because they felt, many of the men felt, that I was controlled by Mary. Mm. They didn't understand that actually, no, I was driving mm. the desire to have Mary with me mm. because of trying to confront this uh, very mm. big uh, emotional issue mm. that these men had in the first century. So that is a very different thing to nowadays, like nowadays... You know, myself and Mary can sit in front of a group of Christians with no trouble whatsoever. <laughs> Back then, if myself, if I went along to, to, to a group to speak, often the men would be outraged uh, before I even opened my mouth yeah, <laughs> yeah. just because of my bringing uh, a woman along with wow. me. And many of them, of course, knew Mary's past as well, which, mm-hmm. was, which made it even worse for them. Mm. And... Uh, and I was constantly addressing those issues with them, but it made very little effect. Mm. And, and to such a point that ones like Peter raped Mary after mm. my death, for example, mm. in his anger with mm. women, his anger with Mary, and his anger about a lot of things. And as a result, uh, many of the so-called apostles uh, did not have as enlightened position mm. as what many people today assume. Yes, mm. yes. That was an eye-opener. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel uh, other ways that people were different um, were, were more to do with physical things than, than f- emotional things because the reality is emotionally mankind mm. hasn't changed a huge amount mm. in that time, unfortunately. Mm. Um, and emotionally the, there's pretty much similar emotions in people today as there were back then with one exception and that is there is a layer of facade over the top of them. Mm. So, you know, back then, you know, men could get away with, have some vigilante violence, for example. Mm. Nowadays, a person would be thrown in jail generally Mm. for such an action. And so he can, and a man might feel like it, but doesn't do it. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of things I feel people do uh, like that today where they feel like doing something, but they don't do it. Whereas back then it probably would have been done. Mm. Um, and, and often was done. So you got to see the real person mm. yeah, through that. Ah, yeah. interesting. Yes. So uh, these are, uh, yeah, just, mm. but, but aside from that, uh, not a huge amount of different. Uh, I feel relating to people then is very similar to relating to people now. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Number oh. three, what sustained the courage and determination of the early Christian martyrs of Rome? be so strong. This is sort of your archetypal strong martyr who full of full of fire, full of zeal, full of love. Yeah, great question, Claire. Um, it's a very important question actually because I feel even today a lot of Christians don't have this kind of faith. Mm. And you must remember that many of these so-called martyrs for the Christian faith, uh, there were two class well, there were three classes of mm. martyrs, mm. I, I would say. The first class of martyrs were a class of people who just wanted to confront absolutely everything. So they actually were quite enraged. Yes. And in fact, there are historical records, uh, you know, 100 or so Mm. years after my passing, of 
groups of Christians going up to a Roman uh, ruler and telling the Roman war ruler that he should crucify them all. Mm. Like they were telling him what to do. And of course, because he thought they were pretty cheeky, he would crucify some of them. And then he'd send the others away and tell them to go and jump off a cliff if they wanted to die. And now those kind of martyrs did not have a large amount of faith. No. They had a large amount of rage. Yeah. Many of them were classified later as martyrs, but mm. unfortunately, you know, they were just people with a lot of rage who were constantly prodding and poking mm. and pushing political mm. power. Mm. You know, so they had a huge amount of rage with political power, mm. a huge amount of rage with religious power, and they used the Christian, so-called yeah. Christian teachers, Umbrella. as an excuse mm. to, to just prod and proke and, and antagonise yes. everyone around them all the time. Yes. Now, of course, those particular people weren't following my teachings at all. They believed they were, of course, but they weren't following my teachings at all. And, uh, and of course, they passed in the spirit world into quite dark conditions as a result mm. of their antagonistic uh, feelings and belief systems. Then there were a group of people who followed the way because families and friends followed the way. Mm. And as a subsequent result of their following the way and the subsequent result of persecution, they died as a martyr. Mm. And in other words, they, you know, and they would not have probably died any other way, wanted to die any other way, because if they had it, they would have had to then get the, you know, the ostracism of their family or their friends. Yeah. So, so they were more afraid of their family yeah. and friends than they were of embracing the divine truth, if you like. So those kind of people died and many of them still had a lot to work through after they passed in the spirit world as a result of those emotions. How much they just, they didn't do it for their own conviction, mm. but they did it for the conviction of others and their emotional addiction with their family okay. or their friends. So they are the first two groups of people. The third group of people, which are the people you're really asking mm. the question about, were a group of people who sincerely felt a connection with God. Mm. Now, these people had received divine love. Mm. Uh, after my passing and reappearance to many of them had actually had a personal experience with me. I, I appeared to over 500 people after my passing. And so, and so hundreds and hundreds of people had a personal experience knowing that they would never die. Yeah. Knowing that no matter what happened to them physically, mm. they would pass into the spirit world and still be alive. Now, that wasn't a very strong concept in other religious faiths. It was often mentioned frequently mm. in other religious belief systems, but, but most people had a strong fear of death. Yes. They were terrified of dying. And for that reason, they'd do almost anything if you threatened them with death. Whereas um, these Christians, you couldn't threaten them with anything mm. to change their mind. Mm. Because they had a personal experience that of, of, with me, that they would remain alive, they had very, very strong faith as a result. Mm. And their faith was so strong that it caused them to engage this relationship with God. Now, as a result of engaging the relationship with God in the manner I taught, they then also, on top of that, received divine love in their own soul. Mm. And the truth of everything became a firm foundation for their future life. As a result of that, many, they, they became fearless. Yes. They were without fear. And the more divine love you receive, the less fear you have. Yes. 
Yes. And as a result of that, and as a result mm. of their strong beliefs in the resurrection, as they called it, yes. which was not really a resurrection, but rather a, a continuous life that uh, would continue mm. to occur after a person has died. And their, their strong knowing that that was the case. They mm. knew it was the case because they saw it happen with me. Mm. And, uh, and, uh, and many of the people who obviously heard the Christian beliefs at the time mm. could speak directly with one of the persons who I'd spoken directly with after my death. Right. So, so, so they had spoken you know, when I appeared to 500 people. You imagine every one of those 500 people would have had a, a very, very strong faith and did have a very, very strong faith after that, mm. those appearances. Mm. And every one of those people were very firm in the fact they talked to me after I died, mm. that, you know, they'd had their personal experience. And then any person who they taught mm. could just speak with them about that experience. So not all of the apostles had that experience? Not all of them. Um, not all of the so-called apostles had that experience. Yeah. Um, there, there was a large number, you know, 500 people, a large number of men and women who yes. had that experience. Yes, of course. Now, some of the apostles were in very dark condition after I died. Mm. Like Peter mm. was one of them. He, mm. was, he was in a very Despite dark Despite being condition. crucified upside down, as they say, well, whether that happened or not, legend, I understand. Eventually, yes, that's what happened mm. to him. But, but um, he was in a very dark condition while I was alive. Yeah. Uh, he was one of these men who was very, very terrible towards women. He, he treated women very badly. His own wife he treated very badly and, his, and generally he treated women badly. And he treated my wife badly by raping her after mm. I, I died, just two days after my, oh. my death. Um, so he was in a very, very dark condition, as you can imagine. Mm. And it took him quite a lot of time, even after he passed in the spirit world, to release himself from that condition. However, by the time of Pentecost, mm. which is 50 days after mm -hmm. my death, um, he, he was uh, in a much stronger condition of faith because I had appeared to him. Does that make sense? So yes. he went through lots of feelings of repentance about how he treated Mary Mm. Uh, he had went through lots of feelings of repentance about, you know, how, uh, of his life generally. Mm. And so he did receive some divine love at that point of time. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, very much. As did many of the others of the disciples or the so-called apostles, the men. But, but remember, there's large groups of women. There was a larger group of women than men. So mm. many of the women, of course, shared truth far more than men mm. did because the men were very afraid of, you know, the general society around. So as a result of that, the, the Christian belief system spread. Many of the women taught their children the mm -hmm. Christian belief systems, uh, you know, through prayer. You know, the women, often, often they'd received divine love. They'd saw, they saw me. They'd had a relationship with Mary. They saw me they, they, after my death. They had a lot of faith as a result of that. They'd teach their children uh, how to pray, how to do all the things we taught, you know, them to do. And as a result of that, the, the Christian belief systems grew even with the men's opposition yes. to it growing. Yes, yes. And, uh, and so it grew quite rapidly. And it was, many of the women were more, were much, had a much stronger faith as a result of receiving mm. divine love than the men did. But, uh, but often the men would come around because they'd see their wives changing and their mm. love growing and all sorts of things happening as a result. And so, yeah, you started to see the growth of, of the Christian belief systems after mm. that. Of course, uh, unfortunately, because it was all transmitted word of mouth, there was also a growing distortion of the of Christian belief systems. 
So by a hundred years t later, mm. um, there was already large distortions mm. of the Christian belief systems mm. prevalent on the planet, all given word of mouth because most people didn't have a book or a scroll to read. Mm. And unfortunately, you get a lot of distortion through that process. Mm. Mm. So that also occurred. Mm. Yeah. 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 So well, that... I think that's sort of what... Uh, yeah, so that gives a bit of a summary. Of that what was like, brilliant, the actually, and, and yeah, yeah, and I, I really, I, I can really identify with the three groups because yeah. I remember as a as a young child, wondering how I would be, you know, sort of wanting wanting to be true to God and just wondering how on earth they did it and feeling absolutely powerless and yeah. aware of my own in, in, um, inadequacy. Yeah. So. A lot of times, yes. though, it's the fear of death and the fear of what happens afterwards and the fear of violence and all yes. these kind of things that cause us to worry about what, whether we will maintain integrity. Yes. Um, the, the sincere Christians, the ones who had mm. love in their heart um, and because of their personal experiences with mm. the resurrection, of course. what was called the of resurrection course. of Christ, which is just really my continued existence, yes. Um, had a very, very strong mm. faith. Mm. Unfortunately, in times after that, the martyrs were, were sort of treated like the pinnacle of Christianity. Yeah. And unfortunately, what would often happen is that the, the people would want to be martyred. Yeah. And, uh, and that was a very, very yeah. nasty group of emotions that mm. began to develop. And, and from the 2nd century through to the 6th century in particular, there were just literally thousands of men who were martyred mm. for so-called their Christian and faith. And then lies would start spreading about martyrdom. And they were just terrible men. Yeah. You know, they were men who were antagonistic, violent, mm. and, the, you know, God's love hadn't touched their heart mm. at all, mm. and yet they were so-called martyrs for the Christian faith. Mm. And they were nothing like the Christianity I taught. Yes. Nothing yes. like it. They were warmongering, mm. politically motivated people who, who were often very destructive of other people and of themselves and, uh, and they often passed into very dark mm. conditions in mm. the spirit world as a result of their violent actions. Sure, mm. sure. Mm. Thank you for that. Mm. Now, number four. Mm -hmm. um, I've done a little bit of um, Bible study mm. and, and how the scriptures were actually formulated and it's, it's so true that they were, they were written, what, 100, 150, 175, there's another, uh, another year, and they've only used Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, but it, it wasn't the actual person who knew you who wrote those scriptures, but it was the community. That's and so right. you would be having all sorts, of, all sorts of stories put forward. Oh, yes. this happened, that happened, and little legends would come in and um, parables. and yes. um, The very earliest manuscripts that they have now were five verses only right. of John yes. in John chapter, I think it's 18. Um, those, those were in 125, uh, so they were written around 25 to 30 years after John's death. Okay. And that's the very earliest manuscript they have. Um, but it's only five verses. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and the very earliest complete manuscript of the New Testament that mm. they actually have is actually in the early 3rd century, uh, late 2nd century, early 3rd century. And, um, and that, that you, if you imagine what it was like, there's the copying of text, mm. the copying of text. And, of course, most copies were not done for posterity. They were done 
to be used. Mm-hmm. So, you know, of course they got very grubby and used, yes, uh, yes. as you would expect. And, uh, and so the preservation of texts wasn't really a high priority at that point in time. Mm, mm. And, and so it was primarily word of mouth where, trans, where mm. truth was transmitted. And unfortunately, that got quite severely distorted at different times. Mm, yeah. Mm. Yeah. I know I mostly enjoy using scripture, mostly for prayer, yeah. to be able to read but part, it only has to be a short amount, yeah. just for it to reach your heart. You sort of read through it and some words will come out to you and you'll yep. take those words and yep. contemplate on them and um, yep. reach deep down. So was that the question you wanted to ask? Well, that's really... Yeah. Um, so, what, you, what is your opinion we've yeah. got here? How can Christians read scripture to evoke prayer and contemplation, to yeah. open their hearts to God? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I feel quite strongly that there's like probably three primary things Mm. that uh, I would recommend to Mm. Christians to do. There are whole groups of, and this applies really to anything you read, Mm. not just to the Bible. Mm. You know, I suppose for most Christians, they see the Bible as God's word. But but if we see the Bible as a book, just like any other book Mm. for a moment, then we can read any book in the same way that I'm recommending that Christians read the Bible. And that is this, any verse in the Bible that encourages you or makes you feel like being more violent or mm. angry or resistive or emotionally disconnected yeah. or any, any verse like that, yeah. then my, my recommendation to Christians reading those verses is to not assume that they are God's words. Absolutely. Mm. Because God's words always upbuild and encourage. Mm-hmm. They always are loving. They always are beautiful. They cause soul openings. Mm. And any passage in the Bible, and there are many passages in the Bible, as you know, that uh, do cause a person to go into quite a lot of doubt and, and, and mm. misunderstandings about uh, God and, and, and all sorts of actual issues. And there's the feeling that sometimes overcomes you when you're reading the Bible in different passages of, whoa, that yeah. was pretty heavy yeah. and that was pretty dark. Yeah. And these feelings are telling you that, that these are not necessarily the reflections of God's Absolutely. word, but rather the reflections of men who are using fear, violence mm-hmm. and other things to control people. So what I would do with anything like that is I would put them to one side mm-hmm. as unresolved mm-hmm. In terms of, uh, I can't see how this is a part of God or Mm. God's word. Mm. Right? Then there's another group of uh, scriptures that you can read, and uh, the Bible is littered with these groups of scriptures that are inspiring to the soul. They are scriptures that inspire you to ethical behaviour, inspire inspire you to more moral behaviour, inspire an openness towards truth inspire an openness towards becoming more loving, inspire an openness towards logic and wisdom. And, uh, and many of these verses are in the Old Testament as much mm-hmm. as in the New. Mm-hmm. And, and these kind of verses are the verses as a Christian that I would be, I would be sitting with and contemplating. Certainly. I'd be allowing myself to ponder about Certainly. and reflect upon. And because, because if you can allow yourself to ponder and reflect upon those particular things they will inspire you to loving action and inspire you to personal growth. And that's, 
definitely something that's connected with God. Mm. That's mm. how God operates. You know, sure. God's always trying to inspire us to become perfect. Sure. And, uh, and so my suggestion to a Christian is those particular verses, you don't throw them out with the other verses. Mm. Mm. You know, and this is a, the problem with having mm. a discussion about any book is that generally a person says, well, this particular thing is wrong in that book, so I throw out the whole book. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not a wise thing to yeah. do under any circumstances. Often there is truth mixed with error mm-hmm. in the same book, just as there is truth mixed with error in the Bible. There's truth mixed with error in the Koran. There's truth mixed with error in most holy books on yep. the planet. Yep. And in fact, in pretty much all books on the planet, mm. there's truth mixed with error. Now, I find it interesting that the average person, when they read an average book, they go, oh, that doesn't sound good. Oh, that sounds really good. Oh, that doesn't sound good. You know, they, they have a different opinion of the different passages that mm. they're reading, right? Mm. But when they read something that purports itself to be God's word, oh, yeah. such as the Koran or the Bible, yeah. they're now reading it trying to believe everything, yeah. which is really an illogical proposition mm. when you think about it mm. for a number of reasons. Like it's impossible for all of the infinity of God to be fit into a book. Of course. And it's impossible for all of the truth of God to be fit into of a course. book. In fact, it's impossible for all the truth of how our body works to be fitted in one book, <laughs> let alone the truth of God, you know. So, so it's impossible for these books that claim to be God's word to actually be God's mm, word mm. for very, very simple reasons. Mm. Uh, now, if I read the Bible assuming that everything in it is God's word, then I'm going to try to force myself into accepting different things that I would normally, under a different circumstance, go, oh, I think I can discard that because that doesn't feel very loving, right? Mm. And this is the problem we face when mm. we read the Bible and any other holy book. We need to see them as a book rather than seeing them as everything that God has said. Mm-hmm. Because if we see them as everything God has said, what we try to do then is we try to shut down our own internal soul's ability to determine what is loving Mm. and what is unloving. Mm. Whereas when we read another book that doesn't purport itself to be God's word, we have a far more open mind. What we do with another book is we go, yeah, that was not loving at all. I don't think I can believe that. Or we go, wow, that was really fascinating. That really caused an openness in my heart. Wow, that's something that I really want to retain. And we do that quite easily with other books. But as soon as the book is claimed to be God's word, we throw out this, what I would view (laughs) as a reasonable, Mm. logical way of analysing truth versus error, and we throw it all out. And we just accept all of the truth and all of the error Mm. as truth in the book. And this is a very dangerous thing to do because when you accept everything that's truth and error in the same book, you discount your own ability to determine what is truth and error. Mm. So what you're doing is you're giving up your ability to feel Mm. and sense what is right and what is wrong. Now, if God is ever going to write his law on our hearts, as the Bible says, we need to understand what is right and wrong without needing Mm. a book. Mm. And in fact, the only book that God actually has available to him to write down his feelings is your heart yeah. and yeah. and if 
you don't use that book. Yeah. If you're already discounting yeah. the usage of that book, you're throwing yeah. it away yeah. and, and instead reading a book instead in its place, mm. you have thrown away the only way mm. that God can enter your heart. And in that respect, you could say, you know, in, in a small way, while you're... If, let's just say if you're at one with God, then you actually become the Word made flesh because you are the living Word. That's correct. And it's in the hearts of people who are at one with God. And this is where, you know, often John chapter 1 is mm. misinterpreted in terms of myself. Mm. I became the living Word of God mm. because God's Word was written on my heart. Yes. Now, now everybody thinks that that was my unique position, but it's not. Mm. Every single person who ever lives yeah. and who has ever lived has the opportunity yeah. of having the same word yeah. written on their heart mm-hmm. in the same way. Mm-hmm. And then they become a living word of God mm. where everything they do, every action they take, everything they feel is in complete yes. harmony yes. with God yes. and complete harmony with love. Mm. And this is where I feel it's very, very dangerous to have a book. I agree. That yeah. is obviously uh, got errors in it. Yeah. And then taken as the only truth when, and then you give, you give up this ability to have the word of God written on your heart when you do that. Mm. And what you do is you call the book God's word when mm. reality is God wants to make you mm. the living word mm. of God. Mm. And I feel that brings me to probably the third issue with reading the books. And that is, if we read the book with two primary goals in mind, and that is the goal of knowing God Yes, is number one. So what does this passage or verse in the Bible show me about God? Now, if it shows me anything unloving about God, it's probably not true. Because God is a God only of love. God isn't a God of wrath, not a God of punishment, not a God of all of those other Mm, things. mm. He is a God of wisdom and he is a God of justice, but not in the manner that most Christians believe because they both have accepted the Bible version of justice, which is violent. Mm. And God's not violent Mm. in the way God administers justice. Mm. So so God is is better than the best person on earth. Mm. And if we make this presumption that God is better than the best person on earth, then when we read the Bible, every time we see a characteristic or attribute of God that is better than most people on earth, we then go, wow, that's something that tells me about God. Mm. Conversely, is any time we see anything that tells me something that's like the average person on earth, we go, that can't be God. <laughs> right? It can't be God because it's angry and the average person on earth is angry and God, you know, God's better than the average person on earth. You know? Well, that can't be... God, because that was violent, and yeah. the average person on earth is violent, but God's not violent, you know. Yeah. So, so we can discount all of those things. So we can read with intelligence. Mm-hmm. We can read with our logic. Mm-hmm. In addition, we need to read with a second issue, and that is we need to reflect upon how we can become more loving through what we're reading. So when I read, when I read the Bible, for example, now... I reflect upon what it teaches me about ethics, what it teaches me about morals, what it teaches me about love, and how I can become more of that mm-hmm. by removing from me the underlying emotional tendencies that I have to not be like that. Yes. Not by trying to be like that. So most Christians are trying to be good, yeah. while at the same time they recognise they have tendencies towards bad. Yeah. My suggestion is recognise the tendencies towards bad 
and eradicate them from the soul through a process of feeling, through a process of identifying what they are, what the motivations are and why you have them, and releasing them from the soul. Now, if the average Christian did that, I feel they would become at one with God very rapidly mm. through mm. those positive experiences. Mm. I feel when they become fixated on the Bible being God's word, as they do, they now discount the ability of God to write the word on their heart mm. and they also, unfortunately, remove themselves from the divine truth that I taught because, because there is large distortions of the divine truth in the Bible, just as there are large distortions on the divine truth in almost every book wow. that you could read. Yeah. And so, unfortunately, they finish up restricting themselves. Mm. And it's like, it's almost placing a self-imposed prison around yourself when you do that. Mm. God wants you to continue growing infinitely. Mm -hmm. God doesn't want you to be in a prison. Mm -hmm. so, so God wants a very, very different relationship than what the person who focuses on the Bible being God's word finishes up obtaining. Mm. Now, of course, once a person passes, many spirits realise that, that the Bible isn't all God's word. They realise, in fact, that there are some things that are just outright lies in God's word. And there are some things that are distortions of the truth in God's word, as well as some truth. And they realise that sometimes many years after investigating it in the spirit world, and so they give up those concepts. And so then they find it easier to find God, ironically, mm. as a result of that. And that's what I'm suggesting to Christians on earth. You'll find it easier to find God if you allow God to write his word on your heart, mm. rather than believing that the Bible is God's mm. word, mm. you will find it much easier to find God that mm. way. Yes. Mm. Very good. Mm. <laughs> now, uh, now, something that... So what question are we up to? We're up to number five. Yep. Up to five now. And it was after reading um, Robert Lee's books that I found it interesting. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about the imagery of the scriptures. Mm -hmm. It exists in the spirit world. And mm -hmm. I found that... Quite, quite wonderful. Yes. If you look at the um, Bible from a complete, with a completely open mind, mm. which I find uh, most Christians don't do because they've been taught a lot to have a very rigid perspective of different passages in the Bible. But if you, if you look at it with a completely open mind, it contains many inspiring truths. And... Unfortunately, they don't live much on earth because the doctrinal issues raised by the Bible take precedence, okay. unfortunately, in most of the teachings, than do the inspiration. Right. And, of course, there are a lot of ministers and priests who also want control. And so they are there with the mm. hell and fire and brimstone type of control over their congregations, which is not very inspiring. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's threatening but not inspiring. <laughs> now... If a person actually reads the Bible uh, from a perspective of wanting to be inspired, they will find many things in the Bible that will inspire them. Now, in the spirit world, every single thing that is about priests and control is discarded from the Bible. Yes. So generally, most people who still are interested in understanding the Bible, e even as they progress in the spirit world, they generally very rapidly in their early progress discard the, the rules and regulations of the priesthood from mm. the Bible. Mm. And instead, they look at all of the inspiring things about love, truth, you know, character development, in ethics, morality. They look at all of those issues in the Bible and that's what they apply. And as a result, the Bible becomes more of a living 
word mm. because it now resonates with the word that God is trying to write on your heart. Mm. And as a result of that, it, it becomes alive. Mm. And so many of the verses that the average person or average Christian on earth would read in the Bible while they're on earth that they didn't find very inspiring would now, when they hit the spirit world, become very inspiring because they read them again with a completely different understanding. Now, we're capable of doing this while on earth, of course. Mm. So what we could choose to do is just read the Bible on earth in this way, in this way that allows us to be inspired by it, discarding all the the rule, regulation Mm. and all the other things that cause us to go into this really shut down emotional place and instead engaging the positive aspects of of it, which are very, very beautiful, Mm. in fact. And by the way, the Koran could be read in a very similar way. Ironically, many of these holy books could be read in a very similar way. If we did that, we would not only be allowing this word of God to be written on our heart, but we'd also be quite engaged by parts of the Bible that previously we were not interested with. And I find that's what happened with me in the first century. Mm. Obviously, I had parts of the Bible available to me. Could you give an example of that? Well, uh, let's look at the book of of Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, look at the book of Lamentations, you look at the book of Saul of Solomon, you look at the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Mm. Psalms, and you look at all those books, Mm. right? Now, let's let's imagine you read them from a perspective of being inspired now. Now, when I did that in the first century, I started reading through the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah, for example, and then I found little passages like the passage that says, God wants to change my heart from a heart of a stone into a heart of flesh. Mm, mm. And I look at that passage, uh, mm. which is in the book of Jeremiah, and I go, wow, that this, was, this was the key reason that caused me to long for divine love mm. in the first century. Mm. I realised that what God was trying to do and what all these prophets were alluding to mm. through history mm. was that they were alluding to this state where God could write his word on your heart. Mm. But to do that, instead of having the heart of a stone, you know, like a violent, you know, mm. angry, resistive heart, we needed to have a heart of the flesh, a soft, permeable Yes. beating heart that yes. get cared and felt, you know. There's somewhere else where it talks about, I don't want your holocausts, I just want your heart. <laughs> you know, I was like, wow. Yeah, that's right. so, yeah. yeah, and I think the more modern translation of that, I don't want your sacrifice. Mm. And this is a very big concept in Christianity today, mm. that sacrifice is important, mm. you've got to sacrifice. They all focus on my life being the sacrifice, mm. which is all a, a misunderstanding, mm. uh, actually. Like I never was encouraging my disciples to sacrifice all the time. I, I was talking to them about God's abundance all the time. Yes. That, that, that they didn't need to sacrifice all the time if they fully engaged this relationship with God. Yes. And that all the other things would be added to them, mm. you know, as, as I said, in, mm. as, a, as was recorded in the book of Matthew. And, and these particular statements become alive to a person. Yeah once they read things with a different perspective. Mm. And this is what happened with me and with the books that were available to me at the time. There, there were books that become alive. For, for example, I read the book of Hosea. And, and remember how in that book how he, he was with an adulterous wife. That's right. And, uh, and his wife continually committed adultery. Mm. And he wanted to discard her. He wanted to just mm. get rid of her. And God kept saying, according to him, Mm. God kept saying, forgive her, have Mm. her back. Forgive Mm. her again, have her back. Mm. Forgive her again, have her back. Mm. And and 
I thought about that and from my perspective in the first century, I was looking at the world around me and I saw nobody, nobody was forgiving. Mm. And, and this whole concept of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth yeah. was killing society. Yeah, yeah. And, and I thought there has to be a better way. And then I looked at that book and it inspired me mm. to think about it. And I thought about it and I went, wow, mm. God's encouraging constant forgiveness, even for actions that the average person would find completely unbearable. Mm. That's and a beautiful, beautiful right? book. Mm. Come back to me with all your heart. Don't let fear keep us apart. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. And it talks about the relationship between fear and desire, mm. fear and doing badness. It talks about all sorts of mm. things that inspired me to actually understand how to embrace the condition of becoming at one with God. Mm. Now, I feel if the average Christian read a book like that with that inspiration, they'd be quite inspired too. Mm. But unfortunately, many of us read it just as a story or as a thing that we must do. Mm. You know, we must forgive is the average Christian's mm. perspective. We must forgive. Most Christians, if they're honest with themselves, don't feel like forgiving very much at all, mm. particularly when wrong is done against them. And this is why many Christians have been heavily involved in wars throughout history, mm. because if they were forgiving, they oh, would yeah. never have gone. Absolutely. Right? So, 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 but if, if this really inspired them, if this verse, if this passage has inspired them, they'd start to realise, wow, this tells me a lot about my relationship with God. I'm only going to have a relationship with God mm. if I forgive. Mm. I'm only going, I'm going to need to learn everything about forgiveness even when the other person's not sorry. Mm. So in the book of Hosea, his wife was not sorry. She went and did it again. Mm. <laughs> she wasn't sorry, um, but he was encouraged to forgive. Mm. And so you go, wow, this teaches you so much about God's love, yeah. you see? And, and this is the areas, I feel, in the Bible that can be very inspirational. Mm. And in fact, in the spirit world, they are the areas that are so inspirational for many, many people who are Christian mm. and also many people who weren't Christian on earth. Yeah. They, yeah. they become inspirational passages that help guide and direct their process of growth towards God. Ah, mm. mm. oh, wonderful. Mm. Good and question, please. Keeping on that, keeping on that um, program, number six is from Isaiah. This is one of my favourites yeah. too. It's the people in darkness have seen a great light and God calls us to be a light for others. Yes. How do we best do this? Uh, very good question. Uh, like when you read a verse like that, uh, which obviously it was a verse I quoted as mm. well in the first century, you read a verse like that and you realise that we need to become the light of the world. But, but most people don't understand how this is accomplished. It's not accomplished through your words or your deeds necessarily. It's accomplished first by your heart changing. Mm -hmm. In the first century, I referred very frequently to this concept that you had to build your faith on a solid foundation. And the solid foundation is, is not to do it all intellectually, mm. but rather that your heart changes and causes you to take specific actions. Does that make sense? So, so what I was constantly recommending, and many of the illustrations that I gave in the first century were illustrating the way the heart will have to change. Remember I talked about old wineskin and mm -hmm. new, wine, new wine and an old wineskin? Because the old wineskin yes. was rigid yes. and could not stretch. Yes. If you put new burst. wine in it mm -hmm. while it was still fermenting and everything, what would happen? It would just burst, yeah. right? So a new wine needed a new wineskin mm -hmm. that, that could stretch with the changes that were happening to the wine. Mm. And, and this was an illustration, for example, of how the soul changes. 
if the soul's going to change, it's going to need to stretch. It's going to need to be mm. transformed. It's going to be challenged, mm. if you like. Mm. And all of these illustrations were alluding to, this, to the book of Isaiah with that's how your light comes to shine to the world, by your soul's emotions changing from being unloving to being loving. Mm. Now, the average Christian, I feel, on the planet at the moment does not understand this. Because the average Christian is antagonistic towards a person who's an unbeliever, attacking towards a person who's an unbeliever, critical of a person who's an unbeliever, and judgmental of a person who's an unbeliever. Now, these are emotions that are not attractive. Mm. They are emotions that are dark, Mm -hmm. in fact. They darken your soul. Now, if a person truly receives God's love into their heart, those emotions don't exist anymore. So they become bright. And, and I was also referring to the fact, and this was something to help spirits, I was referring to the fact that as your soul condition improves, your spirit body actually physically becomes brighter. So this was a way to tell from a spirit's perspective whether a person they were, was listening to or were listening to were actually in a developed state or not. Yes. So a spirit, when he looks at another spirit lecturing him, on yes. different principles, he can look at the soul and go, how dark are you in compared to myself now? Mm. Oh, wow, I'm brighter than you are. Why am I listening to you for? <laughs> <laughs> you see? Why am I listening to somebody who's so dark? Yeah. And uh, this is a great way of determining truth when you're in the spirit world. Mm-hmm. But also, once a person is enlivened by the word of God in their heart, they will feel brighter to be with and more attractive to be with while the person's on earth. A lot of people came to listen to me in the first century, not because of anything I said, and not because of anything that I, you know, miracle that I've supposedly performed, but just because they felt good in my company. Yes, yes. (laughs) And the reason why they felt good in my company is they didn't feel judged, Mm -hmm. they didn't feel lectured, they didn't feel like I was yelling and screaming at them Mm -hmm. telling them what to do all the time, and they didn't feel all of these things that that they did feel from their... Pharisees and Sadducees, they're religious leaders. And so they felt very attracted to that. And this is what it means to let your light shine mm. to the world. Your light is your, is your attractiveness. Mm-hmm. You don't have to go out and lecture the world about what is right and what is wrong. What you need to do yourself is to bring yourself into harmony with what is right mm. and what is wrong and make sure that you personally have the love mm. that is present inside of your soul Once you do that, it will become obvious to anyone who has an open heart around you that something has changed. Right. That something is different. And to have your light covered with a, as as they say, don't cover it with a bushel. Yeah. Or a basket. Or a basket. (laughs) So what what would that mean? What what would you be doing? Would you be holding back? Would you be hiding? You'd be... Fear. I was... I was talking mm. about the relationship between fear and desire. Yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of people have these sparks of desire that get generated in them, but because of their fear and okay. their terror, they never let that light or spark shine. Yeah. And I was talking about how, you know, w- with regard to the way we work with God, when we allow God to transform our heart, it generates within us certain passions and desires to be different. To, mm-hmm. be, to share and be different, be ourselves and all sorts of things. Now, that is letting our light shine. But if we put it under a basket yes. or a bushel under a, in, inside of an enclosure, 
the light can't shine. Mm. Why would we hide our light? Mm. The only reason why we'd hide our, hide our light is because we're afraid of mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. And this is what I was referring to. There were, I, I could see that many of the people who were following me in the first century were very afraid of confronting through their changed feelings, confronting the world around them. For example, many of the men wanted to have a better relationship with their wives. Mm-hmm and a more open relationship like I had with Mary. Mm -hmm. So what, what do they do? They start to practice that and many of the other men criticise them mm. and pull them down mm. and treat them badly and they became afraid. Mm. And so then they shut down their yes. own light. Many of the women, you know, they'd be inspired to have a more open and honest relationship with their men, to work through sexual issues and all sorts of things. They'd go home to their men and because their men were, had a tendency towards violence the women would become afraid and shut themselves down mm. and as a result would be hiding their light mm. under a basket. And so this is what I was also referring to, this tendency to allow fear yes. to guide our actions rather than desire. Now, I feel for, for Christmas Day, many Christians today allow fear because they, because they are even afraid to confront the status quo within Christianity. Like I've read many blogs written by Christian people, and Mary is a favourite respondent of some blogs written by Christians, where the person challenges the status quo. Well, for example, the belief about God, that God is a punishing, wrathful God. Mm -hmm. we, 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 we know of this guy in the USA who challenges that with all the people around him, saying he doesn't believe that's true. Mm. And but they're, all, they're all quoting the Bible back at him. Yeah. <laughs> and he's saying, well, no doesn't matter what you say, the Bible yeah. says, I can't feel God as like that and God's certainly not like that to mm. me uh, and so I can't believe that, whether the Bible says it or not. And he gets hammered by Christians who are just wanting to stay in this mm. zone of wanting to believe the Bible is God's word. Mm. Whereas, see, he's letting his light shine. He's yes. not afraid. Yes. He's not afraid even of being judged by his own people. Mm. As a result, he still feels like he's a Christian. He still has a belief in God. He has some erroneous beliefs about myself. But, but he is letting his light shine mm. because he's confronting the general attitude and opinions of the Christians around him. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And that's a beautiful thing to do, mm. always a beautiful mm. thing. Mm. So that verse in Isaiah is inspirational. Oh, I love that verse. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell me for number seven? How did the doctrine of the Trinity come about? Well, it is a very, very long answer, I suppose, uh, but briefly. Basically what happened was the doctrine of the Trinity has existed or, or of a triune gods have existed mm. for many millennia before I okay. came to earth. So okay. there are many uh, religious concepts that were constructed both Eastern philosophies and sort of Middle Eastern philosophies that all revolved around this concept or idea that there was a triune godhead of some kind. Now, sometimes it was taken as a mother with two children. Uh -huh. Sometimes it was taken as, you know, a god with two additional gods. Sometimes it was taken as uh, a group of gods that all needed to work together mm. to accomplish creation mm. and so forth. And in different philosophies, and people can research this if they wish, and I don't want to go into a long-winded discussion of it here, um, there, are, there are all sorts of 
philosophies that were around prior to my coming mm. on earth. So, so we must understand that people's idea of God has never been very conclusive through, throughout <laughs> history. You see, once they walk away from this God working with your heart thing that I'm yeah. describing, yeah. then you also walk away from the possibility of understanding God from God. Mm-hmm. And so what you start doing then is you start constructing ideas about yes. God from your own ideas. Yes. And of course, all of those are going to be flawed because God's not telling you what God is. Mm-hmm. And once we enter this relationship with God, once we enter this process of becoming at one with God, we have the ability for God to tell us what God is. Now, unfortunately, most Christians are very adverse to the concept of God telling you what God is, and instead they have a strong desire to tell God what God should be, unfortunately. Now, um, they also had deep misunderstandings of my relationship to God. And this occurred shortly after my death, this began to occur. You see, they knew that I had some kind of special relationship, but they didn't understand what I was meaning when I was saying that I was at one with God. Mm. Because on the other hand, I also said that I was a son of God. Mm. And none of my disciples ever assumed that I was God. Mm. They all knew that I was just a man and I stated categorically that I was just a man, just the same as them. So none of the disciples or apostles ever believed that I was God. They, I often talked about being the word of God mm-hmm. for the reason that yes. we have previously discussed on yes. another question. And that is because God had written his word on my heart. Mm. And as such, I could become the word of God through my example, through what I would say, what I would do, how I'd interact with people. I became what God would do in exactly the same condition and situation. Mm. So, So I called myself the word of God. Now, they didn't later, you know, people thought, what does that mean, the word of God? How did he become the word of God? Is there some special thing where he's now a part of God or something like that? And then when I talked about becoming at one with God, of course, there was additional confusion because they thought at one with God meant, did that mean that I was saying I was God? Or did that mean I was saying that I had this unique relationship with God that nobody else had? Or what did that mean? You know, they didn't really understand what it meant because they hadn't had it personally and they hadn't heard the teachings personally. And so they then made, made presumptions, a lot of assumptions about what I was teaching. So as time occurred from my death onwards, there, all of these assumptions began to be made about the words that I had stated, all of which could have meant something completely different. Mm. But because the persons involved in making the assumptions had not got or developed a relationship with God, they didn't know what I meant. Yeah. And so what they started to do was they started to change things that they read. So if they did get a scroll, for example, if they ever were lucky enough to get a scroll, <laughs> or they were a copyist, they'd make little annotations that we now call glosses or gloss, that end up in a glossary. Yes, yes. They'd make little annotations. Oh, this is what he meant. In other words, they were now imposing their ideas yes. and concepts of what I meant upon the text. Yes. Does that make sense? Yes. Now, because they did that, they were making these annotations. There were these growing feelings, these feelings growing. What what was Jesus saying about God and his relationship with God? And because they themselves didn't have the same relationship with God that I had, that I was actually teaching, that they could have if they decided to develop it in the way that I described, they didn't have this relationship. So they, they themselves could not understand my relationship with God. 
Because if they had developed it in the same manner that I had, they would then understand the relationship. And then they started to assume that that meant that I was God, mm. somehow God incarnate on earth. Mm. Some, and I did say that I've come to earth in order to bring God to light, which yeah. I hadn't done. But again, that was all misinterpreted into other... other what, what does that mean? Does that mean he came as God? You know, does that mean he was a part of God? And, and so now all of these concepts, which were all present prior to Christianity anyway, about the God being, you know, mysterious and, mm. and nobody could understand mm. God, all started to get imposed upon my teachings. And so over a period of the next three or 400 years, and by the time of 325, the, the Nicene Creed, mm. the Council of Nicaea, by that time there was already now a very firm concept that because most of the men involved in this did not have God in their hearts, and they were using their intellect yes. to try to resolve this yes. question. And as a result of that, they misinterpret almost everything I said. And they then constructed concepts of God, which were very similar to some pagan concepts of God. Interestingly, they did the same with many other concepts that I taught. So, for example, you know, the whole idea of Christmas and Easter always mm. are very similar uh, reasons mm. why they come up with those things, which were an amalgamation of pagan teachings mm. with Christianity, which were uh, many times done for political expedience, not mm. just for any, uh, some kind of intellectual reasoning or arguments. And they were often just done because, oh, there's a pagan over there who believes that we should celebrate December 25th for the, for the sun god, you know, Ra. And, and then there's a Christian over there who believes that Jesus was born and that was a good time to, to celebrate. Now, we don't know when Jesus was born, so let's make it December 25th mm. so mm. Everyone, can, everyone can be happy. Mm. <laughs> and mm. they did this with so many teachings. In mm. fact, all, a lot of my teachings about heaven, they did the same thing, uh, you know, Instead of understanding that everything was a gradient depending yes. on condition of love, they started polarising heaven into being heaven and hell. Mm. You know, they did the same with teachings about the devil. I often referred to devils, yes. which were people who had passed yes. from earth who were in a very, very dark condition, who had very, very murderous and other mm. uh, terrible emotions in them who were affecting people on earth. Um, and I often referred to devils, but that was interpreted as the devil. Mm. And then unfortunately, as a result of the devil, there's now this concept in Christianity that the devil exists. Yeah. And there, there's this person that God created. Now you get this that, terrible dualistic, you know, there has to be a God because there's a devil. I mean, what a ridiculous... What a, yeah, and, <laughs> and there has to be a devil because there's a God. It's just as ridiculous. In yeah. fact, even more so, because if you think if God mm -hmm. created all things, why would he ever create the potential for a devil to exist? But uh, there's not much logic in many of these arguments. Yeah. And many of these arguments came far from pre-Christian times. Yes. So, you know, there was this concept of the duality, duality. of the universe mm. that existed way before Christian mm. times. And many of these concepts were pagan concepts that were included into Christian concepts. And then what they tried to do was try to make my words or make the words of other people who wrote in the Bible fit yeah. the concept, yeah. uh, which yeah. is an issue of integrity of interpretation really mm. and and as a result of that we had this growing problem so the question you had asked was about the trinity with the trinity there were many competing concerns so by the time of the nicene creed of the nicene creed mm -hmm. uh, in 325 constantine who was the man who, mm. who was a pagan mm. uh, at the time decided see see what had happened if we look at the history of it only only 14 years prior, in 311, Christians 
were, were given a reprieve from being persecuted. And in fact, uh, the emperor at the time, I think his name was Galileus or Gallius or something, he, he, he was staunchly opposed to Christianity, so much so that he persecuted them right up until near his death. But he realised at his death or on his deathbed, he realised that the, the whole political concept of torturing and, and persecuting Christians was not working. Hmm. So, so he, actually, um, uh, he actually gave Christians immunity from persecution just before his death. And then two years later, Constantine ratified that as a law. And so it became law that Christians could, was, uh, Christ, uh, Christianity was now a, not, no longer an outlawed hmm. uh, religion, That's right. but now a religion that could be openly practised. Now, of course, many of the Christians at the time were highly, were in high amounts of rage about how they'd been prior, uh, previously treated. Mm. Many of them felt this gave them licence to become violent towards the pagans as a result. And, of course, you then had quite a lot of unrest from that point of time mm. onwards. Mm. Now, also in amongst all of this scenario were these competing viewpoints of power. See, the religious power was also the political power. It was becoming very much so. Very, very similar in a lot of ways to how the Muslim world is today. Mm. Religious power is often political power. And and so what would be happening is that you would have these people in positions who would also become Christian. And uh, they'd become Christian, most most of them, many of them, out of expedience because many of their constituents had become Christian and many of them they're now were in danger through elections of losing their position without themselves converting to Christianity. So they converted to Christianity. And then, of course, there were huge arguments about what version of Christianity they should follow. And, and these arguments were causing huge amounts of defragmentation mm. in the Roman Empire. Mm. And, and so much so that Constantine, who was a pagan himself, became very, very worried about it. So what he did was he... he, he he invited 1,800 bishops, all who had power from all over the empire, to discuss the principles of Christianity, what, what are the underlying basic teachings. He, wanted, he didn't care what the teaching was yeah. as long as it was the same, <laughs> as long as everyone agreed. So what he did is he invited everybody along. Now, as it turned out, only 300 or so of these bishops finished up turning up and uh, but it was all the prominent ones, a lot of the prominent ones in positions of power. There were probably 1,800 people or so who turned up because every bishop was allowed to have two ministers and, and five supporting persons with them, so, you know, there was quite a lot of people who came. But there, there are historically many disagreements about how many were there, but the number was around 320 or so. Now, they got together and they had a number of different disagreements, they had, they had by this stage misunderstood almost all of my words about what it meant to become at one with God mm-hmm. and misunderstood all of my words about my own relationship with God. As a result of that, they interpreted all of these words, which were all verbal words that were later written, that they then interpreted them in all different ways. And in the end, they decided to interpret them one way. And, uh, and they, there were lots of arguments. In fact, there was a bit of violence, actually, that went on during these arguments <laughs> as well. 
And the people who disagreed were excommunicated and exiled mm-hmm. from, from the empire. So too bad if you had a different opinion. And in the end, what was formulated in 325 was the doctrine of the Trinity, which was further embellished in 385 in, a, in, a, in another creed that occurred in, in Constantinople. And these two particular creeds defined mm. the Trinity doctrine. So that's sort of the history of the definition of the Trinity doctrine, um, not necessarily the emotional things yes. that caused the, the creation of the doctrine. The emotional things were created through this process of not understanding what I was saying because the person had not had a relationship with God. Mm. So they were now trying to intellectually grasp mm. what I'm saying without having this relationship, not therefore conceiving what, what I was talking mm. about. As a result of this, they, they changed all of the things I was stating and made it into something new which was something completely different to what I was stating at the time. And, uh, and it actually has caused a lot of damage uh, mm. in Christian religion and a lot of damage to the souls of Christians mm. uh, who have passed as a result because their concept of God has been so distorted by the Trinity doctrine that they cannot have a relationship with God because of the doctrine. That's the sad thing. Mm. You see... The only way mm. to have a relationship with God is to receive God's concept of God into your heart. Yeah. And if the Trinity doctrine is not God's concept of God, then you're con- not connecting to God anymore. Mm. And that's exactly what's happened mm. with Christian faiths that mm. have accepted the Trinity. I know a lot of my friends, my Christian friends, many of them just totally bypass the Trinity doctrine. The, the, the yes. Trinity doctrine. They just are yeah. just being silly. And goes, if you if you yeah. speak to the average layperson, mm. the average layperson, a Christian layperson, does not really believe in the Trinity. Mm. They don't believe that God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are one being. But the average minister or priest certainly does, mm. and they hold dearly on to this concept that was created three hundred years after, pretty close to three hundred years after my death. And, uh, and unfortunately, they hold onto it so strongly that they threaten with excommunication any person that doesn't agree. And this is where we get a lot of control occurring in, mm. the, in the priesthood. And unfortunately, in doing this, it greatly distorts a person's relationship with God and their relationship with me because I am not God mm. and I never have been and I never will be. And every time I, it's projected at me that I am, mm. it's almost a blasphemy towards God because mm. uh, I'm not God. And it also puts me in this untenable position, really, that, that, I, that I really uh, feel quite distressed about at times and have done and have felt quite distressed about at times in the sense that, in that I'm being placed in a position of God that God should have, mm. and I'm just a brother, mm. and, yeah. and, and I'm just yeah. another person, yeah. and I don't deserve this position. Even though I was the first person to become at one with God, I still don't deserve the position of being put in place of God. And this is what's very disturbing about the teaching. Mm. Mm. Yes. Excellent. Mm. And I think I should point out probably in this question that there are many other teachings in the Bible that have had a similar history, mm. that have been an amalgamation of, you know, pagan type of concepts, yeah. misunderstandings of what has been said, turned into a doctrine that then has been enforced by a creed that the church created for the, for, for the, for the p- 
position of the abuse of power, basically, in the end. It's so that power is then put upon everybody who have the same belief. Now, of course, the church has a great benefit to everyone having the same belief in that everyone doesn't question what the church then does. Mm. And the church then also has this ability to guide history as it has done for nearly 2,000 years as a result of enforcing a belief. And, uh, and this, of course, is for the sake of power, not for the sake of relationship with God mm. Or, mm. or discovering the truth. Mm. And these underlying motivations have been present in many high religious leaders. They don't, many of them have not cared at all for any Christian concept of love. And, in fact, that's why things like the Spanish Inquisition and other mm. types of atrocities have occurred mm. throughout history mm. at the hands of Christians mm. because they have not cared for mm. the of underlying course. principles of love. Mm. Mm. Yep. Thank you. Now, question eight. Mm-hmm. I think you've even, you've even answered. For what purpose did the early church fathers create the Christian Trinity doctrine? I think you've... Yeah, well, let's, let's answer that as a question. Okay. Um, so for what purpose did the early church fathers create the, Christi- the tr- Trinity doctrine? Well, um, the best people are to answer that question would be them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because to be honest, I, I don't see any logical purpose <laughs> for the creation of a doctrine that alienates people from God and from themselves and from me and from... And it also mis- has a, is a complete misunderstanding of the operation of the Holy Spirit. So mm. um, I feel that it, that it has created a lot of damage historically uh, towards the faith and the relationship with God of Christians generally. However, they did have very many purposes for creating it. The primary purpose is political expedience. Mm. There, there was a fragmenting empire and, the, and this empire, the, once the power base of an empire is fragmented, then the empire itself fragments. And if, if all of the power base disagree with each other, then of course there's going to be fragmentation of an empire. And Constantine was wise enough to see that. And so, so he decided he wanted to amalgamate the empire. Now, he, he could see the only way to amalgamate the empire was to have all of the people who were the important people in the empire believing the same things mm. or near the same things and to excommunicate and exile any person who didn't agree. Mm. That was his primary, primary concern. So from his perspective, it was a political reason for, for making the choice and decision. Is that what happened with the Orthodox churches? In, in there what? was a big split in the Christian Orthodox from, say, you know, the Orthodox Greek. and there was Well, that happened Eastern. much, much later. Much later. Yeah, so I'm talking now about the events that happened in 3 and 400 oh, okay. of AD. The events you're referring to started occurring in 12 and 1300 and, and, oh, and operated right the okay. way through to the 1700s and 1800s. Mm, okay. And that was an entirely new sort of, sort of fission mm. or, or break-up that occurred uh, in the... In the in the system of religion, Christian religion, because what happened is that the power base of the Catholic religion, the Roman Catholic Church, was now being challenged by all these alternate concepts. Luther and others would challenge these concepts. Of course, they all were violent challenges. Mm. Uh, eventually, they all, uh, most of them had violence in, involved, where uh, initially the Catholic Church treated each of these as a cult, 
until such a time as the power became so strong from mm. these particular religious movements that the Catholic Church could no longer treat them as a cult and so then recognise mm. them as an alternate religion, if you like. However, interestingly enough, many of the primary doctrines of Christianity all were formulated way back a thousand years earlier. Mm. And in fact, this, for this reason, if you look at the statement of the Lutherans about tr the Trinity compared to the Catholics about Trinity, you'll find it's almost identical yeah. in terms of the way they yeah. believe the Trinity to be. And, and so we're talking here about God's nature. One mm. of the primary things we need to understand if we're going to have a relationship with God mm. is God's nature. And they're all defining God's nature in error based on a, the council, which was given by, for political expedience in 325. So, so if you examine the history of it all, which is very, very different from trying to justify the Trinity through the Bible, mm. oh, yeah. you, you can see that, that already by 300, there was a very firm concept that the Trinity was true. Now, of course, that meant that all of these glosses that were included in the subtexts of the, all the, if you like, the marginal statements that were made in different manuscripts now started to get incorporated into the texts. And this, of course, very damaging because uh, this, this now meant that the Bible itself started to mirror the inaccurate doctrine rather than just stating what it actually stated. Okay. And, uh, and of course, there were many, many hundreds of copies made before the text we have available. And so, of course, you know, there was also a great amount of distortion that was available to the copyists who had their own concepts about what should, it, should meant, it should have meant mm. in comparison to what actually happened. Bearing in mind, of course, that almost all the texts in the Bible were all written many years after my death. Mm. They were all already the recounting of the memories of the people involved. Now, now, one thing you and I both know is that even right now today, I can make a statement today and tomorrow, even while I'm still alive, be quoted completely out yeah. of context. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I could see this occurring in the first century quite yeah. rapidly. In fact, yeah. I said in the book of Matthew, again, it's recorded there, I said that, that many would come along and distort my teachings completely. And many would believe that they are practicing the teachings that I gave when they were, were, were not. They were obviously not. And I said, and in fact, the way the Bible says it now is, get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. You know, I meant to have said, uh, not actually what I said, but, um, you know, <laughs> this is the extension of, you know, the punishing God sort of thing that gets <laughs> imposed upon the belief as well. But I did say that there would be gross distortions of my words mm. because already when I was alive, mm. there was gross distortion of mm. my words. Mm. Um, you know, the Pharisees were constantly mm. distorting my words every single day and, and many of my own disciples were constantly distorting my words for their own ends mm. um, because they wanted me to mean that rather than yes. that because that meant that they'd have to change. Yes, yes. And, uh, and so, you know, you, even while I was alive on the, in the first century, there were a gross distortion of what I said very few people came up and asked me what I meant. And it, that happens frequently today, where mm. I say something, there's a, there's a, it's unclear maybe what I've said to some people, and so they come up and ask me and I can give them clar clarification. Mm. Many people don't hear those clarifications, mm. and so they assume, they make assumptions. Mm. And this is a common human frailty, and it's something that happened way back then as well. Yeah. And as a result of that, we have all these assumptions upon assumptions upon assumptions upon distortions upon 
Chinese whispers, <laughs> and uh, as yes. the saying goes, and we end up with a whole mismatch yes. of information, some of which is true, some mm. of the truth has been retained, but others of which is grossly distorted mm. and manipulated mm. for the sake of people who want to re- maintain power mm. as well. So the whole reason for the Trinity Doctrine was all about power. Mm. Mm. It was all about maintaining power in the fragmenting Roman Empire. Mm. And eventually, as you know, the Roman Emperor became the Pope. Mm. In other words, there was an amalgamation of religion and politics mm. into one position. And, uh, and this amalgamation, uh, had, you know, of course, was historically before my coming also present. Yeah. Most people who were in politics were also high members of the religious faith, mm. otherwise they would never have gotten voted into mm. politics mm. Uh, or, or been able to sustain their position in politics. And so this has always been the case where politics and religion often has been, uh, there's a very, yeah. very blurred line between the two. And many of the religious leaders historically were also the politicians historically. Mm. Very similar to how it is in the Muslim mm. world today. That's right. In fact. Yeah. Yes. So power, I feel, in the end, was the primary motivation for the adoption of the Trinity Doctrine. Mm. Now, um, unfortunately, it could have been anything they adopted. Mm. It just happened to be that particular doctrine that they had adopted. Yeah, Mm. yeah. Mm. Okay. Mm. And uh, where was the church hierarchy mistaken in their thinking when it comes to the Trinity Doctrine? Well, I thought here the best thing to do would be perhaps to list the creeds yeah. and to just make statements about each statement they made to mm. show you where they were at Okay, okay. <laughs> um, so if we look at the first council, I've got some things written down in a table that anybody who listens to this FAQ can have a look at in the FAQ. Um, the, if we look at the table that I've made, I've got a table where on one side I've got the First Council of Nicaea, which is 325, mm-hmm. and on the other side of the table I've got the First Council of Constantinople, which happened in 381. And what I'm doing is I'm comparing the two statements of the Trinity mm-hmm. in those particular mm-hmm. statements. Now, they are quite different in parts mm-hmm. of these statements, so we need to analyse what part of it is true and what part of it isn't. So let's look at the statements one by one. What I've done is I've broken these statements into lines so we can lo- allocate a number to them and then we can work out which part's true and which part isn't. Mm. Right? Okay. So the first council of Nicaea in 325 said, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible. The first council of Constantinople in 381 said, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. Both statements are completely true. Mm-hmm. God is one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible. I have no problem with that first statement mm. at, at all. Statement number two for the Nicene Council was, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of God, of very God, begotten, not made, being of one mm. substance with the Father. Completely false. Mm-hmm. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, this is the Constantinople Mm -hmm. Council, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, I'm not anybody's Lord, by the way, (laughs) the only begotten Son of God, which I am not, begotten of the Father before all worlds, which I am not, light of light, which I am not, very God of very God, which I am not, 
begotten, not made, which I am made, not begotten, being of one substance with the Father. I am not of one substance with the Father except the substance of divine love. Mm -hmm. So most of that is also incorrect. So their concept of myself was the problem. Mm. You see, their concept of God was correct, but their concept of me as God's son Mm. is where the distortion occurred. Mm. That was the thing that was incorrect. And that was the thing that they couldn't understand because of what I said. Mm. And because they couldn't understand the statements I made, they then came up with these concepts that were incorrect. Does that make sense? Yeah. So statement number two of both councils, incorrect, Mm -hmm. completely incorrect. Statement number three, by whom, in other words, Jesus, by Mm. whom all things were made both in heaven Mm. and on earth. And and the Council of Constantinople said, by whom all things were made. Completely incorrect. I did not make all things. However... Here they were taking some statements that I made from the first century, again, out of context. Because I had re-established through my connection with God the ability for all humanity to re-establish a connection with God. Mm. In this way, I became what I sometimes referred to myself as the resurrection and the life. Now, I wasn't talking about the resurrection of a physical body. I was talking about the resurrection of the soul's potentiality to receive divine love, which Adam and Eve, the first human couple, Ammon and a man, lost. Okay. So when Ammon and a man lost the right, if you like, to receive the gift of divine love, they died, not physically, but in the soul potentiality of receiving divine love. Does that make sense? It does. And in that moment, I... It, by my coming, resurrected this opportunity mm. because I, I found the mm-hmm. way that God has yes. allowed now to re-establish this connection with God. So I resurrected the opportunity. Yes. In this regard, all souls on this planet and in the spirit world were basically had now the ability to be recreated mm. in the sense that they could now be born again. They could mm. be a different creature mm. through this recreation. So I definitely came to earth for that purpose. Now, could you tell me when did this happen? Because I, I'm, I'm fully hearing what you're saying here. It happened as soon as I became at one with God. Right. And this happened just before I was baptised by right. John. Right, right. So this ability yeah. became... I, I realised from a very early time in my life in the first century that God is now re-offering this love. Yes. And in fact, the, the way I felt it was that God had always offered this love there was just no one on earth who wanted to accept it. Right. And all of a sudden, I had this desire to accept it. Mm. So this was an enabling of my own passion and desire. Mm. And I recognised I wanted to accept it. And then I realised that this was the role of Messiah. The role of Messiah was not to be a king or ruler or no, no. leader you know, no. over the world. Uh. It was to lead people back to God, to yeah. lead people back to this condition of atonement with mm. God that God had first offered Ammon and a man, Adam and Eve, mm. but... They had rejected it. And as a result of their rejecting of it, their soul died to the potentiality of receiving it. Mm. And as a result of that, all of humanity since had died in the sense of the potential of receiving love. Mm. And once I became, uh, you know, once I had this knowledge, I then realised that I could regain this 
as a soul potentiality because God was offering it. Mm. I could regain it through this process with God. And once I regained it, could show other people mm. through my example how to regain it. Mm. And in that way, the entire world of mankind was reborn through me. Mm. Not, not because of anything special I did, aside from becoming one with becoming God. at one with God and demonstrating how they too could become at one yeah. with God. So again, words of mine misapplied mm. and then turned into a doctrine, mm. which is in point number three of both councils. So that is false too. By whom all things were made both in heaven and on earth is false in the way the average Christian on the planet currently understands it. Then four, it says, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. That's completely true, Mm. actually. I, the way I see the creation of my own soul, and it's the way I see the creation of everyone's soul, is that God's created each soul of each individual for a unique purpose that is necessary for every other person on this, in, in this universe to understand God. Mm. You have an aspect or quality of God that not a single other person on this universe has inside of your soul. Mm. Wow. And if I get to know you and get to know that pure aspect of you, I'll get to see another quality of God. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I realised that the quality that God placed inside of me was this quality of wanting to assist in the redemption of man. Mm. That was the, that was the, it was the desire for God, no matter what everyone else around me wanted. Mm. That was the thing that implanted inside of me that was unique. Mm. And so, and so when, I came, when I came to earth, not that I had a pre-human existence as it implies, but I came to, uh, like I, I did have a pre-human existence, but not in a conscious manner. But, but this implies it was conscious but it wasn't. But I did come to earth. God did send me to earth or send this soul, this soul, Mary and myself to earth for the purpose of helping man work out their salvation. That was the purpose of coming. And so I recognised that purpose inside of myself. I realised that that was the purpose of the Messiah. Not in the way that Christians now see it, of course. Now, the Constantinople Council says who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man. Now, this is completely Mm. inaccurate. There was no Virgin Mary, my mother, Mm. because she had sex with my father Mm. before I was born. She told me such a thing (laughs) and has told me such a thing. And there was no, you know, incarnation by the Holy Ghost. No, Mm. the Holy Ghost did not plant a seed and in fact, the Holy Ghost is implied here as a person, mm. and of course, it's not a person either. So, so again, false. So let's look at five. Mm. It says he suffered, and the third day he rose again and ascended to heaven. Well, I did suffer. That is true. I did have some suffering, um, not as much as many other people on the planet have, uh, though. And I didn't raise on the third day. The reality is, I appeared to people on the third day mm. after being raised. The instant I died. Ah. So the reality is I, once I died, my physical body was ended, my spirit body was still alive, I passed straight away into the spirit state and then I did some things in the mm. spirit world. One mm. of the things I did was I went to my home that I'd created in the 10th dimension, which is a third celestial sphere, which was the highest place I could go to at that time. And I went to my home and I checked it out because it was the first time I had the opportunity to do such a thing. I also went to the hells of the spirit world. And, and shared uh, with 
with them the divine truth. And in fact, the, the book of Peter mentions that, I had done, that I've done this, that I went to the hells to share mm. with people in ungodly places mm. the divine truth. Mm. And the reason why Peter said that was because I told him I'd done that when I appeared to him after, I, <laughs> after the third day uh, of being resurrected, if, as, as it is called. So, so I did suffer, but I was not resurrected on the third day. And I ascended to heaven as soon as I died mm. and I repeat, reappeared on the third day mm. to people on earth. That, so there are parts of the true of that statement and parts of the false. If we look at the Constantinople Council's statement, it said he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. Now, this is completely incorrect. I was not crucified for anyone. Mm. My death did not accomplish anything. Mm. You could become at one with God before I died. Mm. You could have become at one with God if you were there in the first century before I died. My death wouldn't help you become at one with God. Mm. So it's completely false that it was for us. Mm. My crucifixion wasn't for anybody aside from a group of angry, angry members of the Sanhedrin who mm. wanted me gone. Mm. That was my primary mm. reason why I was accused. Yes. And he suffered, which was true, and I was buried, and that is true. And the third day he rose again. That is not true. The third day I reappeared to people on earth. According to the scriptures, it says, and mm. ascended into heaven. I ascended into heaven as soon as I died and sits on the right hand of the Father. Well, well, if the right hand of the Father is a position of uh, favour, then I, I sit on the right hand of the Father even right now. Mm. <laughs> but if the right hand of the Father means in terms of ruling mm. over anybody, then no, that's mm. not that's not what is meant by sitting yeah. on the right hand of the Father. Let's look at the next statement. It says, from thence, six, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Completely incorrect. I'm never going to judge anybody. God's laws judge every single person. And there's no need for me to set myself up as a judge while God's laws do it. So um, I would never be a judge. The 381 Council says, from thence he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. Now, I do believe the kingdom that I've established in the celestial kingdom will have no end. Mm. Um, I'm suspicious, though, to a degree about that because I believe what will happen is that everyone in that kingdom will continue to progress. And so that means that there'll be new kingdoms established. And uh, so my feelings are at this point in time that the celestial kingdom may in the future come to have an end because even greater kingdoms may be established mm. through people receiving more and more mm. divine love. Mm. So, so I'm, I, wow. I feel that that's a, something that we can guarantee for certain. And then, of course, the first council of Nicaea says, and in the Holy Ghost, but that's all it says about the Holy Spirit. <laughs> it doesn't say much else. Now, um, I do. there is a Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the implication of the council was that the Holy Spirit was a part of God. Now, the Holy Spirit is an energy of God, mm. but it is not an entity of God, mm. which is very, very different. Mm. It's like you saying that, uh, for example, your arm is a part of you. Now, you wouldn't call your arm you. Mm. So you would never call the Holy Spirit God because it is only a part of God. It is, a part, it is an energy of God, in fact. So your arm is an energy thing connected to your, mm. your will, if you like. It, it is not you. Mm. 
Mm. I could not say your arm is you. I couldn't look at your hand and go, that's you. Yeah. You are your complete being. Was, God is the complete being. Talking to this um, Jewish um, leader once, mm-hmm. he wasn't a leader, he was just a teacher, and he referred to the Holy Spirit as God's loving kindness. Um, yeah, see, that is not the Holy Spirit. Mm. The reason why I was the first person to coin the term Holy Spirit, mm. and so I'm probably best to yourself what I meant by the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit, uh, the reason why I coined the term was this. I recognised that God had many varieties of energies and forces. Mm. And, and in fact, the more I developed I became, the more I recognised the different types of energies and forces that God has. Now, some of these energies were creative in their nature. Mm. In other words, they, they enforced and created new things. Mm-hmm. They caused new things to come into being. Some of them were maintaining in nature. In other words, they maintained the order of the universe. Yeah. Some of them were structures of the universe. So in other words, the universe exists couldn't ex- as it exists, couldn't exist without there being an underlying law-based structure that guides how the universe exists. And I understood that one of God's energies maintained the laws of the universe. But once I started connecting to divine love, I realised that God had one special energy that was far and above more powerful and also more important to humanity than any other energy. It was an energy that made the human holy. Uh It was the energy that made the human perfect. And the way that it made the human perfect was if you could connect to this energy, divine love could flow through the connection Mm. and transform the human soul. So so what I realised was that the Holy Spirit, what I coined the term as Holy Spirit, and why I likened it, was it was was a force of God that I could connect to as long as I maintained a personal state of truth. Mm. I could connect to this conduit like a pipe, like a water pipe. And the love from God could flow into me as a result of my connection to this pipe. The Holy Spirit is the pipe. Mm. It is the mm. energy by which God transmits love into the human soul. It is a unique energy in that only the human soul can connect to this energy. Okay. And, and it caused the human soul to grow to the point of becoming holy, in other words, perfect. Mm. And so that's why I use the term holy spirit. Mm. Mm. Now, unfortunately, people then gave the Holy Spirit an entity uh, uh, yeah. and a role in itself. Yes beyond that which I gave it. And in fact, there is a general Christian belief that every time the word spirit is used in the New Testament, that it's referring to the Holy Spirit. And this is actually an incorrect assumption as well because there are many spirits and I can, you know, we can discuss that in another question. And so, so the reality is the Holy Spirit has u- this unique thing, this unique quality of being able to bring God's love into the human soul and transform it. That's its uniqueness. Mm. And it's the only energy of God that, in that, that allows love to throw, flow through it. It's the only one that I have discovered at this point that allows love to flow through it. There's love in all of the other energies as a persistent entity, as a persistent quality or substance. Mm. 
But, but this is the only one that allowed love to flow through yes. a connection to the human. In other words, that allowed the human soul to change. Mm. This is what I refer to as the new birth. Once mm. it's changed enough, it was like the human was a new creature. The human mm. was now divine in nature. And I recognised through this experience that my actual soul was transforming, physically transforming through this connection. And that was the role of the Holy Spirit. So the misunderstanding then grew from all of this. Yeah. And then they wanted to make the Holy Spirit God. And in fact, the Constantinople Council stated even a lot more false teachings about the Holy Spirit. They said, and in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life. So now they're assuming that the Holy Spirit is the creative spirit. Mm. So they're now mixing up mm. the different energies of God. Mm-hmm. It is the Lord and give, it is the giver of life in the sense, the giver of life to the human soul, transforming it into the divine. Without the Holy Spirit, the human soul can never become divine. So it is the giver of life in that way. And that's why I referred to it as the giver of life. Yeah. You see? Yeah. Who, proceed, who proceedeth from the Father? Well, the, the Holy Spirit isn't a who, it's a what. Yes. Right? <laughs> so it's, a, it's not an or entity, <laughs> it's an energy. Who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped. Now, I cannot agree with that. Mm. It's, like, it's like worshipping, it's like saying, every time I talk to you, instead of talking to you, I talk to your arm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you choose to do that when you can talk to the whole of you? <laughs> do you understand? Yes. And this is what it's like uh, when people refer to the Holy Spirit as God, because it's like you can't talk to the Holy Spirit. Mm. The Holy Spirit does not talk. Mm. It does not converse. It is an energy through which something from God flows. And these are misunderstandings that were created. It can transform you, the connection with the Holy Spirit, but it's not the Holy Spirit itself that transforms you. That's right. It's the love that flows through it yes. that transforms you. It, uh, it also can only be maintained through a condition of truth. Mm. Uh, but that is a condition and not a who. It's, a, again, an energy and not mm. a person. So, so all of these statements about the Holy Spirit being a person. And he, it even indicates in this uh, council that the Holy Spirit is responsible for the resurrection of the dead. This is completely false mm. because the resurrection of the dead is automatic. Mm. God created a spirit body and a physical body. And Paul said, in fact, just as there is a physical body, so there is a spirit one. Yeah. And, and yeah. in fact, the spirit one is present with us even on earth. And as soon as yes. we die, the physical body disconnects. And we're now in our spirit body. Mm-hmm. It's a natural progression mm-hmm. of all humanity. Mm-hmm. It's not the result of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. It's a result of other laws of mm-hmm. God that have been created, other attributes and characteristics of the laws of the nature of the universe that God created that caused this to occur. Right. So um, if you look at those statements, you can see quite categorically that there are some statements that are very true, other statements that are a mixture of truth mm-hmm. and error, and other statements that are completely false. The First Council of Nicaea also said, in order to refute others, it said, but those who say there was a time when he was not and he was not before he was made and he was made out of nothing or he is of another substance or essence or the Son of God is created or the Son of God is changeable or alterable, they are condemned (laughs) by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. The reality is every single one of those statements is false. Mm. So, firstly, it's impossible for a person to be condemned for their belief. Mm. They are condemned for their lack of love. Mm. Secondly, mm. there was a time when I was not, 
because there was a time when God existed and no one else existed, mm. and I'm the, no, I, and that included me. Mm. There was a time, there was a time before I was made. Yeah, I was made out of energies from God, not a, out of nothing. Right? I also not, am not of another substance than anybody else. Right? Yes. I. I am not of God's substance. I am of the same substance that every other person that has been created. I am completely changeable because God's love would never have transformed me if I wasn't changeable. Mm. And I am completely alterable and I hope to alter my life <laughs> every single moment from now on. <laughs> that makes sense. So I hope to continue to grow towards God, mm. which means, of course, that I will always change and always grow and mm. always be alterable. So these are all false doctrines that are all made, again, from assumptions, from mm. different statements, verbal statements that were later included in the Bible. Um, they were all misrepresentations of my actual words. Yep. yep. Yeah. So that's a summary of how it all came into existence. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it, that the very pinnacle of the Christian faith, the actual concept of God, itself is flawed. Yeah. And this is a very sad yeah. thing because if our concept of God is flawed, then there's a high likelihood we're not connecting to God when we think we are. Mm. Right? And, uh, and this is the danger of a, con- of a flawed concept we've got. You see, as we grow towards God, we will gain more and more of God's concept of God and not our own concept of God. Mm. And the trouble mm. with the Trinity doctrine is that it is a man-made concept of God. Mm. And so therefore it will, if continued to be believed, prevent relationship with God rather than sustaining it. Mm. Mm. So that's the sad thing about the Trinity yeah, doctrine. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I feel for Christians who believe it and who believe it with their whole heart, like I understand the emotions that are impacted upon that, there is also, unfortunately, though, a bit of a love of the mystery. Mm. You see, there is this concept in much religious faith on the planet that mystery is essential to faith, mm. and I do not agree with that okay. at all. I have never agreed with that, in okay. fact. I believe faith comes from reality. Right. It's like you asked me earlier, and people can refer to a different FAQ on this matter, you asked me earlier how the early Christians had faith. And I said because they had experienced the reality of my continued existence. Mm. That's how they had faith. Mm. Their faith wasn't some imagined state Mm. that they thought they could obtain, but rather they had it proven to them Mm. through this personal experience that they would continue to live. You see, that is the basis of faith. If, If something is mysterious, then it's highly unlikely it comes from God. Okay. It usually comes from the um, desires of men to maintain mystery. What I find and what I know about God is that God wants me to know everything. But God also knows that God created a universe where I cannot know everything Mm. because the universe is infinite and I am finite. Mm. Now, this is a very thing God has done. And in fact, in the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible, it says this. God has placed inside of men's hearts time indefinite. It's placed the feeling of forever inside of our hearts. The reason why he's placed it is because he knows that we can search for the rest of our existence, everything God has done, and still not discover everything God has done. 
So there's the mystery. The mystery is not the fact that God wants everything to be mysterious, but rather that God wants us to discover everything God has done. But God has made so many things and to then some <laughs> <laughs> that we'll be spending the rest of our existence yeah. discovering them. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And, and that is a truth that is contained in the Bible. And, and, and I feel strongly that this is what we need to understand about the word of God being written on our heart. Mm. We need to understand that this is going to be an ever-changing and growing position if we're really connecting with God. Mm. We're not going to be having one fixed and firm viewpoint about anything in our future existence. We are going to know only the things we have discovered for certain. Yes. Now, the first century Christians knew for certain that their life continued after their death because I had demonstrated it personally to them. Mm. That's how they knew for certain. So they had an incredible faith as a result of that. Mm. They knew they could trust that because they'd seen it happen for me. Mm. Now, if I was God, there would be no such proof if you think about it. Mm. Because really... Well, that's right. Because it's not... Because I'm not a man. Yeah. And if I'm not a man who has died and then resurrected, then there is no such proof of a resurrection. Mm -hmm. do, do you understand? I do. So even the Apostle Paul, when he spoke about me dying and being resurrected as proof of the resurrection, if, if I was God, there would be no such proof because surely for God it would be different mm. than for man. Sure. So, so sure. Not, there is a lot of illogical doctrine that if you analyse it with a completely open mind, you can see that, you, that a lot of Christian doctrine doesn't make much sense mm. and, and there must be another explanation of these Bible verses. Mm. Mm. And that is the case wow. in most cases. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Oh, brilliant. No worries. <laughs> so that, I think that completes our discussion about <laughs> we'll Trinity. The, we'll close the door on the Trinity for a moment. <laughs> We, we obviously will talk more about, uh, you know, we'll talk perhaps about some of the Bible verses and how they came to be as a result, you know, that seemed to imply the Trinity and so forth. That can be a completely different discussion yeah. um, because, uh, you know, it can be a long-winded discussion based on a lot of different Bible verses mm. that many people who hear this discussion may not want to <laughs> listen to in a mm. different discussion. So we'll, we'll answer those questions in a different discussion perhaps yes. about what the yes. Bible actually says about... The Trinity. Yeah. Okay. Okay.